This podcast is brought to you by nbs.fm, the no bullshit podcast network. Hey guys, Adam here. If you tune into yesterday's podcast, you'll know that we normally do 600 seconds with, but it ended up being 300 seconds with. And the reason for that is because I massively ran over on time in the interview you're about to listen to between myself and Kat. Kat is a therapist and clinician that moved into software. So we talk about that journey and then we get into mental health. I think you're going to really enjoy this show. I had an absolute blast being the other side of this. Enjoy. Kat Horton is fascinated by the intersection of technology and psychology. She's actively engaged in designing and testing systems to facilitate positive behavior change in a variety of populations. She co-founded Illumiview in 2009 to provide software systems to researchers and clinicians to capture human data and deliver just-in-time interventions. Her story is all about digital tech disrupting the way mental health is accessed and delivered. So now please enjoy this interview with Adam Callow and Kat Horton, co-founder of Illumiview. Kat, thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Diary podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, Adam. Thank you so much for having me here. Absolute pleasure. Uh, Because of the time, I'm always keen to jump straight into it. For the listeners of the show, could you just give a quick insight to who you are and what you do? Yeah. So I am a psychologist by background. Um, Got my PhD through working with kids with autism and their families and designing parent-mediated therapeutic programs for kids with autism, which I delivered in underserved communities, uh, which at this point feels like another lifetime, but it wasn't. I'm pretty sure it was this one Uh, because then I shifted into technology and into digital health um, with this same like wanting to get um, interventions and therapeutic programs out to people as much as possible, make them more accessible. That led me into software because that seemed like an obvious way to be able to make things more accessible to people rather than working one-on-one. So at this point, I have now been running a digital health software company for 11 years and provide software systems at this point, mostly to universities um, across North America, South America, Europe, Asia, um, for the purpose of collecting data directly from patients and participants so that we can get a bigger picture. Um, the company's called IllumaView, which means illuminating your views so we can get a bigger picture of people as they go through their daily lives and not just when they come into a clinic or come into a therapy session, but we can see what's changing for them as they're in their real life because that's where it happens, right? Your life doesn't happen in your therapist's office. It happens at all the in-between times. Love that. Crystal clear. And there's a number of things I'd, I'd personally like to unpackage from that. So I guess take into consideration our audience that are predominantly like business owners and entrepreneurs. I'd love to kind of split the show up into two segments for me, which is one, digging into how you make the, the change from, I'm just going to call it um, service provider into technology. I think yeah. that's a really interesting transition that's worth talking about, which might resonate yeah. with some of the audience. And then the second part of it um, is all about mental health. Um, because I think listeners to this show know that I'm a big supporter of making it more accessible. As a company, I run a company called Expert Trades, and, and we support an organization called Mentalk, which mm. is all about, we work with trades professionals in, our, in my day job, and it's that old stigma of stiff upper lip, don't mm-hmm. share your emotions, don't talk about how you're feeling. Yeah. So we've supported an organization to sort of try and break that stigma down in men. So mental health is super interesting and important to me. So I'd love to just talk about that as well. Absolutely. So let's start with the, the transition. So being a service provider, um, a qualified therapist, is that the right terminology? Yes, let's go with 
<laughs> I can tell from the hesitation it's not quite right, but you'll let it pass. I, I, I appreciate the pass. Um, how do you make that change? I guess one step back, actually. What makes you think that I need to get into technology in the first mm. place? What was, yeah. that, what was that light bulb moment? Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, that's really, because that's really obviously where it started, because how do you make the change, I think, was, was messy. And if I was to be able to do it again, it would look very different, but that's what I had at the time. But yeah, it came from that drive to want to be able to reach more people, right? As a, as a therapist or clinician, you're, you're really restricted by how many hours in the day you have, like how many people can I, can I work with? And I was working very intensively with, um, at that point, by the, at that point, I'd gotten to working mostly with parents, wasn't working with the children so much. I was mostly training parents and training professionals. But I was doing these very intensive one-on-one where I'd work with two families each week, um, you know, like 50 hours each. It was not each, but across the two. Mm-hmm. Um, very intensive. Then was like, okay, that limits me to like about 100 families a year, which is great. On one hand, it can be like, yay, 100 families. And on the other hand, I'm like, there's so many more that um, are just never going to get here, either in part because they're never going to be able to afford it or they can't travel to this part of the world or they just there's just like so many barriers. Um, so I moved into doing more group teaching which sort of helped alleviate that for a couple of years I was like okay I can do like 50 people at once and and have some sort of follow-up with people so it's not as intensive I didn't get get as deep in with each family but I felt like I could reach more people then I got into training professionals so I created a with a a dear friend a, a program in Poland where we were training professionals there um, we did that for four years and over that time I think trained 200 250 professionals who were then able to go out and work with other parents so it's like okay we're getting there you know this is a model whereby I can reach a lot more people a lot more quickly but even still felt like I was kind of on a treadmill like there's still only so many people that that I can reach it doesn't scale without me being exhausted and flying all over the world all the time which you know was fun for the first few years and then I was like oh <laughs> I don't know I can keep doing this um, so that's when I really got to, to software was like, this is what I believe is going to help me be able to, to just reach a lot more people and make therapeutic interventions more accessible for people. So that, that was the driving force that like got me to make that transition, which is a sort of a huge leap as you described. Yeah. I actually, I actually wrote down the word accessible as you were talking. So it felt like you mm-hmm. were, you felt like that you were the the impact you could make was limited at each one of those steps yeah. up. And I guess for people listening to this is you, you, people might think, well, um, I'm not into um, delivering those sort of services. I'm not a clinician or a therapist, but it, mm-hmm. for me, as you were talking about it, it's extremely relatable because part of my business is a service. So I am an agency, a marketing agency. And what it sounded like is you ended up having very bespoke sessions with a very small number of families. So if we replace families with clients, yep. very, very small number of clients that we can work with because it's extremely bespoke. And you then stair-step this up to groups and then you kind of went into coaching and then you ended up being, I guess, where I'm actually trying to take my business, which is into a productized service. Like how do we mm-hmm. use technology to make more impact? Um, I guess what, uh, what I would like to ask the question is, when I started my business, I knew that technology was key, but I needed people much smarter than me in terms of from a technical perspective to build right. stuff. And I didn't really know how to vet the quality of developers and people like that. How did you yeah. jump over that hurdle in terms of you're a clinician and a therapist, but you need to hire devs? What did that look like? Yeah, it, 
I, spirit just jumped in and like blessed me in that department. I, I didn't go out and look for a developer. I actually, this, it, I, my business partner, Mark, um, is our CTO and has developed all the software that we have. And I met him while I was working in an organization that was focused on autism treatment. He came in as a, as a CEO um, and he had at that point, you know, it's already 30 years of, of software development and business development. Um, so it was sort of this organic, it just as I started kind of lamenting on all the issues that I saw and, and how I could serve families more, and especially around data tracking, you know, and that, that was a whole nother piece other than wanting just to scale my reach, um, was that families just didn't have an effective way to keep track of all the different things they were using with their children. They were using multiple overlapping therapies and treatments and supplements and nutrition and medications and all the things. So they had many things to kind of keep track of and try and figure out what's working, what's not working. And then lots of people, lots of professionals and caregivers in their team that they wanted to share that information with. Um, so as, as I started sort of just like talking that through with Mark, it became very, in his mind, it was like crystal clear. It's like, oh, well, we just build a system that does this, this, and this, and we'll take care of it. I'm like, really? You can do that? Um, and this was 2008, you know, it was before, certainly for me, I wasn't very technological savvy. It was, I don't think I even owned a smartphone, honestly, at that point. I don't, wasn't familiar with apps and things like that. Um, so it was, it was really a very organic process. You know, I met someone who was able to clarify my vision. I was seeing all the problems and things that were not working in the current system, and he could see how technology could solve those problems, essentially. So it feels like you had a, a, a great companion to bounce ideas from and, and I like yeah. to lament your challenges that you were facing. Right. I guess I'd love to kind of hear, how does that then go from, I want to see this change and I want to have more impact, speaking to Mark, and funnily enough, my CTO is called Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that then become a relationship in a, in a, in a business? Yeah, sense? Like what, does, a, what happened there? That's a great question. I appreciate you asking that. I'm not, I don't think I've really gone back and unpacked that. You know, it was 11 <laughs> years ago. Um, I think there's a few different components. One is, one is a shared vision. Like after we, we sort of talked through all the, problems and the solutions and like just sort of like oh yeah we can see this we can see what this product looks like like how this would actually be helpful and, and at this point it was very focused on families we hadn't wind it at that point uh, families with kids with autism so it was the shared vision um there was some sort of also shared sense of adventure of like let's just do it let's just what are we waiting for <laughs> let's just make it happen um you know that we both sort of have that spirit in us of of just wanting to give it a go and knowing that we didn't know what was going to happen and that it was a, there was a lot of unknowns and a lot of risk and both sort of being in a point in life of just like well, so what? Let's try it. What are we just going to keep doing what we've been doing? Um, and he had done this before. He had started and sold multiple companies. So for him, it was just like, oh, yeah, this is just what we do. And for me, it was, yeah, for me, it was a much bigger deal. I'd been working for this one organization, this nonprofit for nine years after coming out of college. You know, this was really my, was my first job and I'd never started a business. And so it was a much bigger transition sort of conceptually for me to be like, whoa, we're going to create our own business. Um, so I think also having someone who's done it before, who's further down the path than you, whether they're your business partner or a mentor or someone that can kind of guide you in that process was, was definitely really helpful. 
Um, and then just a sense of, like, I would, I would say trust and collaboration, like a yep. sense of like, we're going to do this together. Like we have very different skill sets and are coming from very different experiences, but there was this just beautiful point of intersection where it seemed like it would just work really well. We weren't stepping on each other's toes. We have mm-hmm. totally very different, different skill sets. So, so there was this sense of like, we, I can't do this on my own, this particular vision. I couldn't do it on my own. He couldn't do it on his own. So it needs both of us and we both need to be sort of fully committed to it for it to work. Yeah, I love that. And I guess just give me an idea of time frame. When, when, did, when did you guys formalize the company? So 2009, we formalized it, yeah. And what was the first thing that you went out and built? And I, I guess one thing that I love to try and get our guests on the show is, where did you make the biggest mistakes looking back now? Like what are the yeah. things that with 2020 vision, you could go back and say, well, these right. are the challenges that we had. Knowing what I know now, I would have done this. Take me back to some of those pain points. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first thing we built was a, a website called Relate to Autism, um, which was essentially like a HIPAA compliant Facebook for parents of kids with autism. So it was a place for them to make daily data entries about the symptoms that they were seeing for their children and what kind of treatments and therapies they were using. And the system would then generate charts and graphs and like try and make it some kind of meaningful data that they could actually Mm -hmm. use to see what's working. It was one of its features. Second feature was that you were able to then invite other members of your care team in so that they could share the data that you chose to, they could see the data you chose to share with them. No, the parents had full control over it. And the third piece that it did, and this sort of is part of that question about the bridging between the service provider and the, the technologist, mm-hmm. um, was creating um, essentially a, an online tool that allowed parents to fill in questionnaires about their children. So I developed a questionnaire that asked very specific questions around the child's developmental stages specific to autism and, and social emotional development. So you went, parents went through this questionnaire and then the, it would automatically then produce a, a kind of roadmap for them showing them these are the developmental steps that your child is not yet fully completed. And then here are some games and activities and fun things you can do with your child that will help them work on that, whether it's sharing eye gaze or using words or whatever the developmental stage was. And then so they could go and do those things and then come back in a month and redo the questionnaire and get an update. So that there was this sort of prescriptive um, way of tool in there that helped them to be able to create, to, to run a program for their kids at home. Um, so that, that was the product that we yep. first put out there. It's a very different product now, although the core software is actually very similar. We've just built on what we built there. Um, and I think in terms of the, what, if I was to look, looking back on it, um, we, we, said we didn't have a business plan. <laughs> we didn't have anything close to a business plan. We had this great idea um, that we knew would work in this one specific market, but actually had no idea how really big that market was or what the comp- well, there wasn't any competition. We knew that. Um, we did not have a strategy for how this was going to grow or how we were going to exit um, the company. It was very much just like we see a need, we want to, help make people's lives better and we're just gonna just go for it um which i'm i'm grateful for and i really i don't regret at all that that's kind of how i've approached it that's how i've approached i feel everything 
and my life and it always ends up working out in the end but here I am 11 years later still plugging away on it and I think had we had a better strategy it's certainly an exit strategy yep. then we're, it, it could have been a different story um, we're now at a point we're actually just now 11 years in at the point of closing our first round of capital so we've bootstrapped this entire thing up until now but we've decided okay now's the time the market seems to be ready for digital health um, especially digital mental health and uh, it's time to grow the company bring in a team that can really scale this and exit in four years and you know had i had that understanding in 2009 it may have been a different story and I don't honestly think the market was ready for what we had at that point. So it maybe wouldn't have made any difference. So, yeah, it's interesting. So sort of like going into it with the, a strategy in the end in mind might've helped, but like you say, you might've, you might try to force it too early, find yeah. failure, not navigate. Uh, yeah. I, I think yeah. Uh, we've, we've, we've got a very similar thing going on in our business right now. Right. We yeah. think, uh, we think we were too early seven years ago and we think we're just about on, on right. pace for the market now. A <laughs> um, couple of questions I wanted to kind of get into. And I guess, from a from a broader perspective for the audience is you have to acquire customers or users um, of uh, I guess parents with autistic children and I do a lot of Facebook advertising for my business because I can target builders and plumbers mm-hmm. and people that live in certain areas how do you actually find the people that will most benefit from your product or service how did you go about finding right. families that would could use the service how do you acquire the customers Right. So we only ran that version of it for about a year. And then we shifted into the version we have now, which I'll, I'll talk more about. But essentially at that point, you know, it was B2C marketing and it was really Mike started off with my connections in the autism world and um, people that already knew me. And it was a lot of world word of mouth and organic, um, so, you know, just sort of organic growth at that point of looking, you know, parents of kids with autism is a fairly well-defined group it's a community they tend to know each other and they sort of stick together and share a lot of resources so that was that was fairly well defined Um, we made a transition about a year in basically once that was out there and families were using it we started getting calls from the therapists and the clinicians and the doctors that had been invited into the platform and were like uh can we use this for something else can we use this for other you know we started having these conversations especially with researchers who were just like we could use this to do research on autism and then on other things and so eventually what happened is that we ended up creating a whole new version of the platform where I stripped out all the autism content and it was and became a generic tool for researchers to be able to collect data on any population of patients so they can now add their own assessments they can schedule surveys to go out to people's mobile phones they can integrate wearable devices so um, and then get all the data back into the platform and, and make sense of it. So we now have people that use it for studies in suicide, substance abuse, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, traumatic brain injury, people that are wanting to do mindfulness interventions, anxiety interventions, you know, like the whole range of sort of mental and behavioral health. So then it shifted into, into a B2B model. So now uh, we're targeting universities, which is a huge, you know, university is a huge organization, but there's within that um, specific researchers who are working within specific fields or who are already working in digital health or, you know, specific methodologies that, that our apps really kind of lend themselves to. That, that's really cool. So 
just to make sure I heard it right, is you B to C, and then your the parents and the children would invite third parties onto the platform to access the data, such as other therapists and clinicians. Yeah. So you had this network effect of one customer bringing other yeah. people onto the platform, and then you got the feedback right. from the market saying we need to use this for other things. Is that is that where you are? Yeah. Today? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So now we, we sell really directly to researchers um, and then they take care of finding the, the end users. You know, they're all their study participants. But before I jump onto the, the second part of this interview, which is uh, from the mental health side, because I, I, as I mentioned, find that really interesting. Um, mm. I always find pricing really interesting to work out how people price their services and uh, whether the price you have today is the price you started at. How do you currently price the service yeah. and what's that journey been like? Yeah, that's, it's a really interesting question because it's, it's definitely been a journey. Like it's, we're, we're in a very niche market. There was, when we started, there was one, maybe two other companies that were offering something similar. Um, now there's about five of us. So it's this very small, weird little niche <laughs> market. Um, so so part of it has been getting hold of pricing from our competitor at the beginning. So yep. one. And so some part of our, like our basic, like we have three different levels of license basic. So it's software as a service and the, the researchers pay for an annual license. And there's three levels depending on which, how many features you want. Basically we want to integrate heart rate and various different wearables and use video and all sorts of things. It's the premium top level license. And if you just want to do basic data collection and mobile surveys, essentially it's the basic so, license. So you don't gate it. You don't gate the features based on like number of responses. You gate it based on features. We, that's the way we do it. There are yep. other companies that, that do do it more, but either on volume of uh, users or volume of responses. Um, I just never got into that. It was sort of just too nitpicky for me. I was just like, here's we've got three, it, three it buckets. Which one do you want? Um, so our basic license kind of overlaps with one of our main competitors. So we've always sort of kept that, the pricing of the basic sort of in line with yep. what, what they do. Um, and then the other ones, honestly, it's been a process of just testing it out, um, of just literally making up a price and presenting it and seeing what kind of feedback you get. I love that. I love the honesty of that because that's how we've done it here as well is let's just stick a price on and see if someone buys it. If they don't, it's either not good enough or too expensive. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and the feedback pretty much constantly over the 10 years that we've been doing this model has been uh, that we're not charging enough. Put your prices up. Yeah. You want to make it. (laughs) I want to make it accessible, but I keep putting them up and I get very little pushback. Very little sometimes, but very little. And we're selling to researchers who have got a grant, right? So they've got a grant to do a study. They know how much money they've got. And usually it fits within the budget. And if for some reason it doesn't, we will often discount it. You know, it's not, we don't stick to it. We'll often discount it to bring it in line. Cause ultimately we want to be there to to support the research. Um, but yeah, pricing has been, that's been a really interesting lesson for me is that it's, it's worth what people will pay for it. And market so, is the market. It will always yeah, give you the answer. I like it'll that. give you the answer. So you just put it out there and, and see what comes back. And if it's too high, you can always come down, but you can't start the other way. You can't. It's really hard to go up. Like, yeah. oh, I'm going to increase it. 
yeah it's much harder much harder to go up um last for for me last really like sort of like commercial question business stuff that i want to just dig into because i really want to move on to the mental health stuff um you mentioned you're raising around a vc right now or you just Mm -hmm. closed you just closed that venture round um we're about to close you're about to close um so I've done a very small uh, bit. We did some seed fund. We did a, a small bit of venture for our company, Expert Trades. And I actually did a podcast, which was like the seven mistakes I made raising capital because I made yeah. them all. Um, what was your key takeaway or learning? Like, How was the experience for you? And if you had to give a piece of advice to someone raising capital, yeah. what would that advice be? Well, again, I feel like I was just blessed in this in this process. I found someone who I essentially hired to do it for me, someone who'd done it many times, had started his own businesses, had raised capital for them and had, and sort of goes around raising capital for various different companies. Um, so I made, a, made an agreement with him. We pay him, we paid him a monthly sort of stipend. Basically, it's not really much to keep him going. And then at the end, once the, once the money's in the bank, he'll get a, a significant cut of the money that comes in. Ah, okay, like a retainer um, every month to do the work, yep. keep it ticking over, but a chunk when it's closed. Yes. That's so that has made the whole thing just like a breeze for me. He, I really haven't had to, to do very much other than answer his questions about the business. So it, that, that was just, it was just a dream. Um, but to find that person was, and again, it was one of those organic, you know, talking to people that I know, they were like, oh, we should talk to this person. And they're like, go oh, talk to this person. And eventually, I mean, this was years. At some point, this person kind of popped yep. in and was interested and it just formed. When you're sort of raising capital by proxy, um, how do you make sure that this is a, I can, I can hear my inner voice coming through now because it's because I made the mistake of making sure that my long-term vision wasn't clear and aligned mm. with my VCs. Mm. Uh, and we got there in the end, I think, I hope. Um, how did you make sure that your vision was the same as the VC's vision, putting the money in when going by this third person, third party mm. person? Cause I think that the person that we bought in is very much in alignment. Like he's been in digital health for like okay. the last 25 years. So, and I actually would say that the vision formed through conversation with him. Like we had our kind of, this is where we think we can go with this company mm-hmm. and how we can expand out of the research market. And he came in with 25 years of experience already in healthcare and technology and, and was really clear about the market opportunities that he saw. So it was then it became, again, this collaborative conversation of like, okay, this is the market opportunities that he sees. This is what we've got and what it's been used for. And how do we sort of put that all together? Um, so the, the past few months has really been that ongoing conversation and keep refining it and iterating on it. And then seeing what kind of feedback we get from the VCs because they're plugged into to that market too and, and, and finding the pieces that, that yeah. don't settle with them and those that do. And that's where the, the energy comes in and the money follows that. So I guess, I guess it's probably a bad question from my side then because I guess what you, what you did, probably the right way of thinking about it, is find someone that's going to raise capital that you're super aligned with because you know, when they're in the market speaking to anyone that's got cash, they're speaking basically on your behalf. They're not just finding money. They're finding money that you will automatically be aligned with. Yeah. Like it makes sense. Um, Let's move this on because I I want to Mm. make sure that we've got time to speak about the mental health side is um, I guess let's just talk about the elephant in the room right now. It's whatever is it? We're at the end of the July. People Mm. be listening to this early August. COVID is still in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. How have you, what impact do you think COVID has made on mental health 
at, mm-hmm. I guess, what can be done to mitigate what's going on in the world from a mental health perspective in your opinion? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's having a huge impact on our mental health. And I think there's a, a huge collateral damage that's happening from the response to the pandemic rather than actual people getting sick necessarily. Mm-hmm. Although that obviously there's a, there's definitely a mental health component there. Um, but what I'm seeing is certainly a lot of fear that's being stoked by the media. I know you're in the UK, I'm in the U S we're getting different versions maybe, or certainly different pieces of it, but there's certainly a lot of fear that's, that's, um, and I think, you know, it's maybe less than it was in like March. Um, but people have gone into fight flight. You know, I can see it in the way people are becoming um, interactions with, for a while, they looked like we're pretty combative. It's become very polarized politically here in yep. the United States. Um, so there's a lot of fear and sort of this agitation around um, safety. When people don't feel secure and safe, then the natural reaction is, is fear um, and often anger or irritation or, or those things. Um, so just sort of on a very general, you know, I see that happening to a lot of people. And then when you add on top of that, then isolating people, either they're on their own because they live alone, so they're alone in an apartment and they're, they're not getting nourishing social interactions or they're not getting physical touch, that, that's... For some people, for most people, actually, I think is is very challenging, um, and can lead to d- depression and anxiety and um, just not belonging, feeling like you're not belonging because mm-hmm. you're not interacting with others. And then there's other families who are kind of in lockdown together, um, some of which is working beautifully, um, and then others who are then now that means they're locked in an abusive situation. So I know there are certainly women and children, especially, who are can't go to school, can't go to work, or are literally locked in a house with somebody who's abusing them physically, emotionally, sexually, and is incredibly stressful. I know that first responders here, police departments, are just get the I can't remember the percentage, but some hugely significant increase in domestic violence calls that are coming in since. March and I think that's lesson now most many states have opened up and it's not quite such a severe lockdown but um, these are some of the things that don't get talked about in the news very much and, and people aren't aware of that are happening to be honest when you mentioned that I I never once considered the fact that if if getting to work or getting to school is your outlet and the, sp- the place that you probably yeah. feel safest compared to you, I always, yeah. I guess I'm privileged because I look at my house as my, my castle where I'm safe and right. I'm, I'm lucky to have that. And may- maybe yes. I haven't really reflected on that, to be honest. I'm taking a second now, as yeah. you can tell. Um, so yeah, so uh, this COVID has actually, I guess, put fuel on the fire for people that are in a problematic state at home. Yeah. Right. How people that are already struggling are now struggling more, and obviously the impact. the problem. Exactly. Yeah, and the economic impact then. And again, I'm speaking from the United States. I'm not sure what's what's going on in the UK so much, but um, you know, the people that were already struggling in terms of their income and not having enough money Mm -hmm. or enough enough food or not being able to make their rent payments, they're the people that are most likely to have lost their jobs. Here because they can't do it remotely. They're, they're probably in some kind of service industry where they have to be there physically. So they've, they've lost their job um, and now are, are 
just that the weight of that of poverty is just so much um just harder on them than it was and in the u.s that means that that there's a racial component to that as well because of the systemic oppression that has existed here since the conception of this country so it's there are already marginalized communities that are feeling the weight of this pandemic and of the response to the pandemic as well um, and the unemployment here is about to expire people are suddenly not going to have their employment they've had since march and yep. there's been a moratorium on evictions which is about to end there's like huge cities here millions of people where it looks like are about to get evicted and i'm sure some things will shift around and change mm -hmm. for some of those people but there's gonna be a lot of people that are struggling even more than they were yeah, I think there's a similar thing. Um, I don't know the extent of it, but in the UK, we've had we've had certain things by the government that have propped up the economy for a certain mm -hmm. period of time. Um, and August, September time is when all those props start to come away. Right. And yeah. I think, like you say, now is when we're going to see the fallout. So I guess from a having the luxury of speaking to you as a professional in this space, like what can people be doing now in terms of being aware of their mental health? So I think when people think of mental health, they... They only think of it in a very negative light and mm. it's, and it's, uh, it's something not to be spoken about specifically in our industry, which is the construction industry. It's yeah. you don't share your emotions, stiff up upper lip. And if you've got mental health, it automatically means you've got mental health problems. But the way that we see it is, well, I see it is you've got physical health, you've got mental health. Yeah. Everyone's got both of those and they can be good or they can be bad. How do you help someone start thinking or at least being aware of, what their state of mind is and what are the first steps that people should take. And I yeah. guess as a side note, how can technology help? I want to tap into right. your experience there. Like how does technology help in this right now? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I think you're right. When, when people talk about mental health, we automatically think of mental illness and we think of things like schizophrenia or bipolar, sort of like really sort of severely challenging conditions that is a very small percentage of, of the population. When really meant, so I often use the, the term mental, mental wellness because mm -hmm. it sort of gets us out of that. Although yeah, I like mental, that. mental health is mental wellness. That's what it, what it should be. So thinking about like same in terms of your, your body, like eating well and exercising well and, and resting is, is wellness, right? It's helping you be more well, more healthy so that you don't get sick as much. So it's the same thing with your, with your mind. The more that you can nourish your mind, and we can, I can talk specifically about what that might look like, but the more you can nourish your mind and your soul and, and give yourself rest and be kind to yourself and you know, do all the things that help you be mentally well, then your body and your mind are going to be moving in that direction and the sort of you know if you think of it as a bell curve mental health there's a bell curve with mm -hmm. mental illness of severe mental illness at one end and then most of us are sort of somewhere in the middle and then at this other end is is mental like peak performance like how can i get my my mind working so well for me that it's it's really accelerating what's happening yep. in my life so it's the other end of the spectrum um, so if you think about it in those terms, in, in terms of mental wellness, um, then think about nourishing. How do you, so you nourish your body with good food and healthy food and with exercise, and how do you nourish your mind? Um, and so there's many different things, obviously, that you can do. Some of my favorites um, are, are meditation. Um, because, and meditation can take many different forms. It doesn't have to be sitting on your cushion. People do walking meditations. Yoga can be a form of meditation. Listening to music can be a form of meditation. But really the key part is helping, is separating out what it, what it, 
a lot of meditation or Buddhist circles will call the witness mind. Separating out, out your consciousness, your witness from the thoughts that are going through your mind. So a lot of us spend our days believing our thoughts yep. and identifying with our thoughts, right? And thinking that stuff we're thinking is real and that that's what's really happening. Whereas what meditation certainly has done for me has enabled me to step back. So there's a part of me, my consciousness that is separate from my thoughts and I can watch my thoughts sort of with a more observe. objective, yeah, observe them, like okay. watch them with more objectivity and be like, oh, there's that thought that says I'm not good enough. Look at that. There it is going, going across my mind again. Um, and be able to observe it as if it was on a screen out there, that it's not actually really me, which is very different from identifying with that thought and being stuck in a place of I'm not good enough, I'm never going to be enough, I'm never going to get what I, you know, sort of going down that spiral of where those kinds of thoughts can take you. One feels, rightly or wrongly, one feels like an emotional thought, one feels like more of a logical uh, ob like ob observation in terms it's of what's more objective going on. it's just yeah objective. It's observation is like there's that thought that i keep having how does someone how does someone uh, how does one stop i've tried in the past by the way like yeah. i've downloaded apps and calm and things like this yeah. and i guess i'm i'm bloody impatient to be honest i'm like <laughs> okay meditate let's go um and obviously i'm going into it the wrong state of mind how does someone i guess start to become more aware and be able right. to become a witness to their own thoughts yeah. Yeah. So if, yeah. And it, it is hard when you start, I, I acknowledge that. Um, and it's practice, you know, it's sitting there and practicing and it could be two minutes, it could be five minutes, whatever you can, whatever you can pull off. Can it, can it be as little as that? Cause I think people it, think the they're going to sit there yeah. for 45 minutes. No, and... God, no, no, at the start, I mean, literally set the timer for two minutes and just, and even if you spend that whole time thinking, it's fine because yep. you have another chance tomorrow, you know, or later on in the evening or however you do it. But absolutely, you can start with two minutes. Um, the other thing that I found really helpful is just writing it down, like taking me. So maybe I take five minutes, I set my timer and I'm just and I'm going to write down the thoughts that come like somehow that can be it's it can be less easy to get wrapped up in them if you're writing them down. And what, what I did for a long time. Uh, it was super helpful was a gratitude practice. So I would take time at the end of each day to write down 10 things that I was grateful for. And even if I could only come up with two, I'd just like force myself to come up, even the same things I wrote yesterday, to come up with 10 things that I actually feel grateful for because there's so much. When you start to do that, you become aware of just how much each of us have. And we have this, it's called the negativity bias in our minds where we, we focus on the things that feel negative, the things that I don't have or that are not working well, and we get all emotional about those. And we forget about the fact that, I mean, certainly I can speak for me, that my body is healthy, that I have access to really healthy food, that I have access to a beautiful environment to live in, that I have a wonderful partner who supports me, that I have a home that is safe and dry and warm, you know, that that I have clothes that fit me and keep me warm. And, you know, there's like so many things that we have that we just take for granted. And when you start really focusing on what can I be grateful for today, it shifts the perspective and you helps you get out of that negativity bias. I like that. Th those two things resonate with my family actually, because I, I journal and it's because, mm. because meditate, I struggle with meditation, mm. but I, I found the practice of just waking up, spending 15 minutes and just sitting there and everything that comes in, just making a note of yeah. 
and then I objectively look at what I've written down and I guess that's my way yeah. I've really put the two together but that's how I objectively look at my thoughts and then my my, um, my, my wife uh, she got herself a, a journal and it's sort of a uh, a notepad that has certain things to do like daily tasks so mm. one is like what's my objective for the day and in there is gratitude and mm. brought it to me she's like what's this and we googled it and had a look and uh, so it's little little very little things that she's now putting into it and it's hers but she shares some with me and it's little it can be the smallest thing which is the way that our little boy came into the room and said good morning mom yeah little things like that and Absolutely. when we started to google it and think about gratitude like you said it's that training of the brain to just actually go what is out there that i'm probably not aware of but is pretty awesome in my life yes which is yeah. true um, so much. Yeah, this, uh, let me add one more thing. I just want to add one more thing because yep. this is really important, which is connection with the natural world, right? There's so much research coming out now that's showing how just being in a natural environment, a forest, a desert by the ocean, wherever you've got access, a park, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be fancy, just some part of the natural world, even if it's your back garden, um, is so healing and on so many levels and just being able to be present with the natural world and allow yourself to relax into that it's very different from the built environment and we now spend 93 percent of our time 97 percent, if you include vehicles of our time indoors um so we're there's like three percent of our lives that we're actually in contact with the more than human world and that for me has always been a way of just getting a bigger perspective of remembering that it's not just about these tiny little human things that i'm focused on um, it's like there's this much bigger picture here that we are connected to, that we are inseparable from, that all our food and water and air is coming from this planet and that we are an integral part of that. It's like It just sort of unravels this a whole other perspective and understanding of who we are in the universe and why we're here. What, what I find really interesting right now is uh, we rescheduled this interview, didn't we? We moved stuff, we stuff around the calendar. Yeah. And the, the journaling my uh, wife's notepad and the fact that I've never been camping in my life with as a family. I probably did it like 20 years ago, but in the last 10 days I've done an overnight camping with my family, me and my wife and two boys. And yeah. last Saturday we climbed up Mount Snowdon, uh, which is oh, in, in Wales yeah. and the disconnect and the being outside and the fresh air made me, my wife actually said maybe more present from a conversational yeah. perspective. And it just, yes the world of good so definitely preaching to the choir in terms of that yeah. that being in the real world that i i do want to just ask the question um and i guess it's the the complete opposite is yeah technology how <laughs> because we're so and i'm holding a device up because we're on video at the same time like yeah. how can we because we've got all these devices and a lot of these devices there's, there's good and bad in them in terms of how we use them how can someone use technology for positivity when it comes to mental health? Have you got any final tips for that space before we wrap yeah, up? Definitely. I mean, I think technology is like any other tool that humans have invented, right? We can use it to amplify what we're already doing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's certainly, I definitely see the challenge in digital addiction and people just spending way too much time for them. You know, everyone has their own threshold on social media and on a screen and scrolling and, um, and not being connected with other humans and the more than human world. Like I see that as really problematic for our mental health. And I know that technology can be really supportive for our mental health if we 
intentionally use it in that way. So you mentioned the Calm app, right? That's mm-hmm. one of them. There's Headspace. There's a bunch of different, really wonderful meditation or um, apps out there that are mindfulness-based, right? So there's certainly that sort of the obvious is that you use your your technology to help you become more present. I um, have a little headset. It's called the Muse headset, which is like a little thing you wear on your head and it's it's monitoring your brain waves and it, it's plugged into an app which helps you then gives you feedback and tells you how active your mind is and helps you to be able to oh, wow. it's really cool i'm really enjoying that um so there's obvious like ways like that like apps and things that are specifically designed to increase our mental health our mental wellness um but there's also then the intentionality behind how you use it. So it might be that instead of having a notebook and writing a gratitude journal, you get an app or you use the notes thing on your, on your phone and you, you have that. Or maybe you take it in pictures or you video yourself talking about what you're grateful for, like whatever your everyone has their own kind of medium and what works best for them. And maybe you share that. Maybe you share that with others. Maybe you share it on social media. Maybe you don't. Um, but there's ways that technology can help you. Maybe taking pictures of flowers, of little creatures you come across when you're outdoors and, and keeping a, a kind of an album of those that you can go back to and remind yourself when you're feeling a bit down and you're like, oh yeah, that beautiful view from the top of Mount Snowden. Let me go look at that again. Um, so there's ways in which technology can be can be useful in that way. And technology is an amazing way for connection. Like one of the most healing things we have in the world is deep connection with other humans. And oftentimes, you know, our phone takes us away from that, but it can also, when used intentionally, bring us closer to people, right? So I'm here in the eastern part of the United States. My family are in Scotland. So most of the only way that I get to interact with them, except for once a year when I come over, is through like Skype or FaceTime or, you know, some kind of video chat. So I can intentionally use that to create, to see my niece and nephew and talk with my sister and my parents um, and have conversations that help me feel close to them and help me feel connected that I wouldn't otherwise be able to have. I love that. I think the, the, the key thing for me taken away from that is that there's a risk that we sort of like villainize tech, right. um, but it's, it's all about the intentionality of how you use it and right. just being more mindful of actually what can I do with this device to make me feel better about things today was the, yeah. the, the takeaway yeah. I got. Exactly. I can't believe that I've run over Matt significantly on the time because I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Me too. If, if people want to carry on the conversation or learn more about you, where's the best places for them to go to learn about you or, or the business that you run? Yeah. Yeah. So the business is Illumivu, which is I-L-U-M-I-V-U.com, Illumivu.com. Um, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn, Kat Horton, which is H-O-U-G-H-T-O-N. Um, that's usually the best place to find me. Kat, any final yeah. words before we wrap up? I've thoroughly enjoyed this, honestly. Yeah, this was great. I mean, I really appreciate you you taking the time to to dig into these things and get into the nuances of it. Like sort of that for me it's it's taken a few years for me to reconcile my my love of the outdoor world with my appreciation of technology. Like often those are seen as very different things and um kind of grappling with that myself. So it's interesting to share that with you. Yeah. I appreciate your questions. Yeah, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah.